Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. In episode three, Dr. Manthe was describing a model situation where in the state of Minnesota, there are uh, the State Board of Nursing, the um, monitoring program for nurses going through monitoring for substance use. And then there's a peer support program in the middle that's uh, 501c3 that's uh, not connected to either, but supports the nurses. Does the Board of Nursing recognize your program officially for nurses that are going through uh, monitoring? And do you have to report a a list of names to them? No, we have an arrangement that contains the principle of confidentiality. We don't collect names. So that means we don't have good statistics, uh, and that kind of breaks my heart. But the, the safety and security of no name-taking, I think, has, has just helped it to be a very honest, open conversation. We, we have actually developed a, a statement about reportable, mandated reportable material. If that, if that comes up at a peer support meeting, we know how to deal with it. So uh, we have we really developed a strong program, but we are uh, not reporting. It's not considered treatment. We're not licensed for treatment. We don't use any therapists. It's peer support. It's staff nurses working with staff nurses or, or nursing leaders. Uh, any license from LPN up to practicing uh, uh, advanced practice nurses. So, Marie, if a nurse wanted to themselves disclose to the board that they were using your program as part of their recovery, can they do that? And would the board accept that? Uh, I don't know. I don't think we'd we'd want them to accept us as a program of recovery. Um, We are a support group uh, that helps them get through the rough spots, but we don't proclaim to be a recovery program. we also have a 30-day uh, residential recovery program in the Twin Cities called the Retreat, and that is licensed as board and room. That has no therapists, no licensed uh, therapists, and um, it does not accept insurance. And so that is not a treatment program so defined by the courts, by law, uh, and it's extremely successful. The cost of the board monitoring programs is very expensive. They're usually dictated. And um, if you go outside of their network, it doesn't count towards getting your license back. Uh, <laughs> you know? I see. Yeah, but we're not, we're not into recovery. I think that we've, we've managed to place ourselves in a position of pretty strong recognition of a positive value, but we are not we're not treating the disease. And I right. think what we've heard Marie disclose here is that it's working, it's helpful, but it's not a formal, the thing that is working, the thing that is helpful is not part of the formal um, recovery process. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Manthe again for sharing her impactful story in that last episode. So Dr. Manthe, could measures to ask for self-reporting of any mental health issues actually hinder nurses from seeking treatment? Uh, Do you think that that is a valid concern? 
Currently, I think it is a valid concern, very definitely. When we move into ADA language and when the uh, results of information released on one's own state board no longer becomes a permanently available public record, I think that we can we can really see the benefit then of self-reporting. Got it. Okay. And uh, is it possible to name one benefit of self-reporting to a state board, like a nurse's current issue that negatively affects their practice? What's a good thing that can come from self-reporting? Well, the self-reporting that a nurse refers herself to the um, monitoring program, HBSP, provides her with a structure for the next year or two or three that requires certain mandated activities, which will demonstrate uh, consistent recovery. Got it. Okay. It demonstrates no relapse. Got it. And a nurse who chooses that can go to her employer or if the employer wants, if the employer gets involved, but not they don't necessarily get involved at all. It's for a nurse's own security. And what they say time after time after time at these meetings is, because I had that structure, even though I hated it the first year, because I had that structure, I was able to go three years. And by the time my contract was finished, I was okay. Great. And I was in a program and I was able to handle it the rest of my life. So they, um, they do use it um, for their own support when they fear relapse. Right. Right. Okay. Dr. Halter, anything to add from your perspective? About a positive aspect of reporting to the board of mental health or substance use disorder condition. Um, I hadn't thought about what Dr. Manthe was talking about. Maybe, you know, just self-reflection and just saying, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to report and then I'm going to get myself into treatment, whether I want to or not. That, that is a good outcome. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think that the questions on the board of nursing applications uh, results in fear of help seeking and unnecessary anxiety. The nursing board may have a benefit of asking that question by showing to the public that they are asking that question. I mean, that's the only benefit I can think of. And the, the proof is in the pudding in that a lot of states don't ask those questions. Mm. Right. Right. Good point. They seem to be doing okay. Yeah. Okay. And now let's talk about reservations about self-reporting. We've talked about a lot of this, uh, a lot of reservations, but Dr. Manthe, um, can you uh, add anything to what is a reservation or con of self-reporting? Uh, only if one fails at honoring the contract, then one is going to be reported to the Board of Nursing and potentially their own employer. The board may decide an investigation that the situation is so serious that they feel they need to report it to the employer as well. Got it. None of that is um, protected in self-reporting if one relapses. Sure. The problem with relapsing right now is most treatment places are saying relapse is part of recovery. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Davidson, could you name a concern that we haven't discussed yet that could arise from self-reporting? Well, um, we do see uh, from the institution level that an institution may take action saying if you self-report, you may be able to retain your position. Whereas if you don't, and we need to report, you will be dismissed. 
Okay. So there is that angle as well, whether or not the organization is encouraging the self-reporting um, to um, assure that the person gets the treatment that they need and use it as leverage um, there. You can see, as in Marie's case, she was asked to go into treatment by her employer and under the guise that she would be able to retain her position. And then when she was in treatment, she was fired. So nothing is guaranteed here. And I'd like to even bring up at this point the, I'm kind of veering a little off topic, but um, the conversation's naturally leading in this direction, the term alternative to discipline program, right? So many states are very proud of the fact that they have alternative to discipline programs so that they uh, monitor and um, move nurses towards recovery without what they are labeling as discipline. And they do not include suspending the license as discipline. That's not discipline in their eyes. Discipline is whether we're going to press criminal charges or this will remain on your criminal record, right? The act of diversion, right? Or similar um, acts. So uh, the term alternative dis to discipline can be de deceiving. And the nurses that I hear from who have been through these um, processes definitely feel as if the process is punitive, is disciplinary in nature, even though it's labeled alternative to discipline. So um, back to the uh, self-reporting. Self-reporting could in some situations help you to retain your employment if the employer is asking you to self-report or be fired, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the only benefit that I can see from this. Uh, and because as we discussed in the other three episodes that these situations are handled um, independently state by state, none of us can tell you what to predict if you self-report because it's handled differently each state, right. one at right. a time. Whether or not you retain your job happens independently one organization at a time within each state. So no two no two institutions will handle this the same way. Dr. Halter, um, any concerns related to self-reporting that you have, something we haven't discussed yet? Uh, I just have a couple of anecdotal kinds of comments. Sure. Um, people aren't comfortable talking about this topic. Right. I mean, their mental illness itself, substance use disorders, they're not comfortable. And, you know, go back to the topic of structural stigma. You see this in our institution and organizations. And it, it's sad that we've had to work so hard to get such a simple thing accomplished, i.e. getting rid of those questions. Right. Um, yeah. I, I would tell you the anecdotal was this. When I complained to the Board of Nursing, and I think it was 2014, about the questions, for the very first time since becoming a nurse in 1986, my CEs were audited. Now, was that a coincidence? Oh, Maybe. interesting. I don't know, but I had to come up with all the documentation on my CEs. <laughs> uh, this is kind of interesting, too. When my colleagues and I developed this paper, we thought, man, we're going to do a great presentation at our professional association. Um, that year I was the first year I was denied a speaking position at my national conference. Wow. And while I was on an elevator, I was around a, a higher ranking person in the organization. I said, my, my, my um, presentation didn't get accepted. And she goes, oh, yeah, I heard about how controversial it was. And I'm going, what? 
So interesting. Those are my two anecdotes. And I'd like to comment um, also that while I'm thrilled with the incremental change that's been occurring with these licensure applications, or at least I think they have, I think we can do more. And if you look back, this is probably going to be controversial, by the way. If you look back to the 2014 challenge by the Louisiana to the Louisiana Bar Association about their applications, the lawyer sued. I mean, that's what ended up changing the system. Wow. And I don't know, maybe we should encourage um, applicants who feel like they've been unduly hurt to do something about it. Maybe let me talk. Let me talk to our nurse attorneys. <laughs> Peggy, I, um, I, I would challenge, the thought has crossed my mind that we could conduct action research in this realm and have the people that have been most affected by the process drive the research uh, forward and uh, study ways, best practices towards creating this change and making it happen. And wouldn't that be um, a rewarding process to gather together people who had been affected by the process had somehow made it through it and had a passion to make the change so that this doesn't happen to others in the future. Amen. That would be wonderful. Yes, it would. Can either of you think of a way state boards could monitor nursing practice for the safety of nurses and the public without the concerns of some of the reservations or ramifications of self-reporting? Dr. Davidson. I think about a year ago, I would have answered this question completely differently. But then we had the case of Redonda Vaught. Right. Right. So right. for the audience, listening audience who's not familiar with that case, a nurse made a mistake, pulled a medication based on um, what happens in the brain when you see the first three letters of a word and you, your brain completes the end of that word uh, falsely in your head. And she pulled out one medication that she thought was a sedative and it was not. It was a uh, neuromuscular blocking agent, gave it to the patient and the patient died was not intubated. And she was uh, tried in a court of law for murder on this medical error that she had reported herself, right? So uh, I, I definitely think that the board's monitoring for safety is fraught with hazard. Now, anyone monitoring for safety is fraught with hazard now because nurses across the country are afraid to report their errors and problems. So um, I think it, 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 ekes into this whole topic of how do we protect the public from nurses who are um, incompetent to perform. And I think the best, the best process, the best uh, public safety is to encourage nurses into treatment without punishment and shame. Right. Um, if we encourage nurses into treatment without punishment and shame, then, um, and it's not punitive, non-punitive in any way, shape, or form, then we'd have, uh, the public would be better protected. I talked to a nurse today as I'm looking around the country for examples of best practices where an organization might allow a nurse to go out on leave of absence to get the acute treatment that they need for substance use disorder and come back into the organization, right, without um, any punishment towards the treatment of this mental health is issue. And I asked her about the, the logic of not allowing these people to work or firing them when you find out they have a substance use disorder or other mental health condition. And she said, you know, if a nurse is being monitored, those are probably the safest nurses amongst us because they have to have mandatory 
drug and alcohol testing on a routine basis, right. those are probably the safest ones. If you think that one in 10, uh, one in 10 Americans has a substance use disorder problem, you probably got, if you've got 100 nurses on your staff, you've got 10 people out there that are not being monitored, that are having the issue that's not being treated. It's safer right. to hire and retain these nurses that are going through the actual treatment and being monitored. You'd be better off with those. At least they're known, yes. right? Yes. And you know that they're getting the treatment they need. Right. So uh, protecting the public, hire these nurses that are going through recovery. That's right. another exactly. controversial exactly. yet, um, I exactly. think, would be a positive strategy that we have not tackled. Do you know that I found throughout this whole process of discovery that the Veterans Association, the VA at a national level, at a federal level, discards these nurses? Go in. Anyone with a sanction against their license cannot work. So uh, they are let go if they're on probation with the State Board of Nursing. Wow. So, yes, you cannot work. It's, I saw it in writing, and it's, um, so they're let go. These kind of policies need to be addressed and changed um, so that we can have a healthier community, a healthier workforce. Yeah, good, good point. Dr. Halter, thoughts? So you asked about whether there was a way that state boards could monitor nursing practice for the safety of nurses without the concerns that we've been sharing today? Correct. I believe that the state boards are already monitoring nursing practice for safety based on their statutory authority. Mm. They're responsible for reviewing complaints and acting on them. In cases with sufficient evidence, the nurse's license may be impacted. And they handle complaints that have to do with practice issues drug issues, boundary violations, sexual misconduct, abuse, and fraud. And they also look into positive criminal background checks. Mm. And I believe that most states' boards of nursing are doing an excellent job with these areas. Gotcha. Dr. Manthe? I really support uh, what you were saying, Judy, about um, employing nurses in recovery. Uh, exactly the same point. I've made it to audiences over and over and over again of nurse executives, nurse administrators locally. The point being, you got 10% of your staff, exactly what you said. Wouldn't you rather have that 10% in recovery uh -huh. than in addiction? And the answer generally is yes. That makes a lot of sense. Marie. Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And nothing ever happens because HR, HR and EAP, need to be brought on board in this change process to facilitate the structural changes that need to happen that will uh, support what we're trying to do here with uh, changing the way uh, nurses with mental health, mental health and substance use disorders are treated by the profession. Excellent point. So I really think that um, nurses in recovery, nurses in treatment for mental health issues uh, we need to have a pathway to employ them. And I'm I'm thinking that with the post-COVID exodus of staff and the terrible staffing situations that occur around the country, that this would be a great time to create um, what I've been calling a pathway to employment of nurses in recovery, a pathway to employment of nurses in mental health. Um, and somehow we don't have... It just seems like to those of us in the field of recovery, it makes common sense, but it feels to me like we still don't have the safety net in the hospital that will allow a director of nursing or a chief nurse to take a risk on this. Got it. Yeah. The HR people 
I have to change. Right. <laughs> I think our biggest problem sometimes is policies in HR. Yeah. They are so afraid. Of, they are so risk aversive that um, they have, unfortunately, hard and fast rules that pre- prohibit the employment of nurses in trouble. Okay. Nurses in recovery. Good point. Excellent point. Uh, now there are states that aren't asking for past psychiatric or mental health history in connection with licensure. Why do you think some states started asking and some didn't? I don't think it's an issue of why did they start asking them. I believe that they probably all used to ask those questions. Sure. And I think since the Americans with Disability Act came about, many states stopped asking the question. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I agree. If a nurse is in a situation where personal mental health related information is being asked through questions that the nurse feels are too probing or even unlawful, do you have any suggestions about how to proceed? Dr. Davidson mentioned that if reporting is a state requirement, then you have to report. You don't want to break the law, right? Uh, you don't. You don't. And that that's tricky. And when a nursing student would tell me, I'm not going to say that I had a problem. I just, you know, do so at your own peril. Um, but nurses complete these applications. And on the applications, there's a disclaimer alerting them to the fact that misinformation can be prosecuted for perjury. While I've never actually heard of anyone being legally charged for omitting details of psychiatric care, I recommend that applicants respond truthfully. In addition, I recommend that they become part of the solution by protesting intrusive and overly broad questions about mental health. Grassroots movement. Well said. Thank you. Uh, Can I just add one more comment here? One of the things that I think nurses should do is assume responsibility for their own liability insurance. Right. Because a lot of liability is fairly reasonably priced and it does provide for at least partial payment of an attorney. Right. Having a nurse attorney present when the people are being admitted by the State Board of Nursing, in our case, is always helpful. Excellent. There's languaging problems that nurses don't understand. They use certain words that mean certain things to the board that it doesn't mean to the average nurse. And just having someone who can explain that and help them understand a different way to answer the question can be really helpful. Gotcha. I think it's important to discuss uh, Dr. Lorna Breen again in the context of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Can you tell us something about that, Dr. Davidson? Well, earlier I talked about how the foundation began after the death of Dr. Lorna Breen. And the uh, Lorna Breen Act is, uh, was put into place to provide funding for people that wanted to start projects to make change, to decrease stigma against uh, seeking mental health amongst healthcare professionals. But even further, so there's federal money available now for people who want to take action. Okay, but there is also the Lorna Breen Foundation teamed up with the Schwartz Center um, in Boston, and they will also be providing grants for people that want to start work on projects like these to decrease stigma amongst healthcare professionals. So there are two different uh, seemingly pots of money available for people that want to form groups to take action that might cost money. Gotcha. Okay, excellent. Well, this has really been an informative conversation. Uh, all all of the episodes involved in this discussion. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share before we conclude? Dr. Halter? 
So the article that I did about state nursing licensure questions and non-ADA compliance was the only research that I ever did that was not connected with my employment. That is, I had no goal or promotion of or tenure by publishing. This issue is extremely important to a subset of licensure applicants. This issue is also vital in reducing organizational stigma and its damaging effects. Hopefully non-compliant boards will hear our message and make changes. Excellent. Anyone else? I wanna thank you for bringing this up today. It was so timely for you to approach us on this. As I said at the beginning, my research was not looking for this. It was a complete shock and a surprise to find that these things were linked to suicide amongst healthcare professionals. It is time to take action. Wish me luck. I've been asked to address the Tri-Regulatory Council, mm. the Council of Medicine, <laughs> Nursing, and Pharmacy soon. Yay. And um, I'm hoping I can present this in a way that won't alienate our colleagues, but instead stimulate um, some action. Well, Thank good you. luck. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's wonderful. Congratulations. And this has been a shock. It was a shock to me to hear that relationship too during this conversation. It's just, I, I hadn't put that together at all. It's a, it's a fascinating discussion and the work you're doing is incredible. Uh, so keep it up. Thanks to all three of you for participating in this conversation. We really appreciate your insight and your experience and willingness to spread awareness about, about this topic. It's, it's uh, admirable. So as a recap, one of the purposes of this podcast was to analyze and better understand the issue of disclosure of nurses' psychiatric history or current mental health information as connected to licensure or relicensure. This has really made me aware of the many aspects of this topic. As I mentioned, sometimes in trying to solve one problem, we can cause another. In trying to collect information, we must be careful not to cause harm for those providing the information. There is a lot to think about as we do want nursing boards to protect the public and help nurses, and we also want to protect nurses. We thank you all again, as I said, for joining us. Another sincere thank you to Dr. Judy Davidson, Dr. Marie Manthe, Dr. Margaret or Peggy Halter. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.